Welcome back to the Africa is a Country podcast. My name is William Shorkey, and you are listening to the weekly talk and interview show brought to you by Africa is a Country, where we analyze current affairs ongoing in the world from a left-wing perspective. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. But most importantly, go to africasacountry.com to check out new writing on topics related to the continent. So if you missed our episode a couple of weeks ago, um, I think it's about a week and a half ago, uh, we didn't have one last week because the one we most recently recorded was an interview with John Lechner, the day of Russia's invasion into the Ukraine. And we spoke about what implications that invasion is going to have for Africa. I strongly recommend that you check one out. That interview formed the basis of a piece myself and editor of Africa as a Country, Sean Jacobs, wrote thereafter. Go on the website to read that as well. Obviously, this is what's taking up most of our attention at the moment. Uh, the situation is very dynamic and everyone is trying to make sense of what is happening, where to stand, and what might happen next. So if you want to get good content on what this means for Africa, check out the site, check out our social media, um, and, and engage there. But we want to talk about an issue that arguably isn't getting enough attention on today's program. And if you are paying any attention to what is happening in West Africa, you might have noticed that there has been an ongoing strike by Nigeria's academics. I'm not sure what week it enters into this week. Uh, it's been happening since, I think, late last year. Um, in fact, not even late last year, since I think December 2020. Um, but we'll we'll get into, into a conversation about exactly how long it's been going for and what the grievances are. But before I introduce the guests who are going to take us through what the strike entails and what it means, I want to read something, which is the opening lines of an article written by Ope Adetayo for Al Jazeera. And it goes as follows. It says, in the 22 years since Nigeria's return to democracy in 1999, academics in its public universities have gone on strike a record 15 times. The 16th one, a one-month warning strike declared on February 14th to press for increased wages, comes barely two years after a nine-month industrial action. That warning strike has ended. I think it's now full-scale industrial action. And joining the program to talk to us about it are Temi Tope, Fagunwa, as well as Saeed Husseini. Saeed is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Lagos and a contributor to Africa as a Country and Jacobin Magazine. He's making a second appearance on this program. It's great to have him back. And Temi Tope is a PhD holder and a Marxist historian with a central focus on African economic history at the Department of History and International Studies at Oshun State University. As a budding social justice activist and epistemic decolonizer, Temi Tope has also been involved in the organization of several conferences and symposiums under the aegis of the Pan-African Consciousness Renaissance. He's contributed papers and chapters in reputable journals and books, respectively. So, Saeed and Temi Tope, thank you so much for coming onto the program. Uh, I think a good place to start is there is a strike happening. It's not receiving a lot of international coverage. Could you maybe break down for our audiences who's behind the strike, how long it's been going on for, and what the main grievances are? Um, the academic um, staff, you know, of universities, you know, Nigeria, 
um, you know, decided to go on this, um, at first the warning strike, a one month uh, warning strike to put forward some demands to the Nigerian state, you know, to come about, I mean, to present um, some demands that have been lingering for quite some time now. And I think it was in the second week of February that that um, uh, notice strike was um, was decided on at a neck meeting in the University of um, Lagos. Um, and, you know, in the past, uh, in the past, really, the government around this period would um, come to, uh, I mean, the head of the striking lecturers in terms of, you know, listening to their demands, ordinarily, ordinarily, in the in time past, you know, this is what the government would have done, you know, but the scenario at this time is quite different in the sense that um, Asu went on this um, warning strike and um, throughout the weeks, you know, involved at that particular, at that material point in time, the government did not um, react, you know, did not come up with any statement whatsoever. In fact, the minister, the minister of labor, you know, um, Chris Ngege, um, came out in a more, you know, backward way to say that um, actually the general public shouldn't be concerned about um, the ongoing warning strike because for him, uh, members of us who are actually on what he called annual leave, you know, that is to show, you know, how much the discussion went into a pedestrian discussion mm. you know, because of the indifference of the Nigerian state. Um, so, that has been it. And then ASU is really not coming up with new demands, you know, because when you go through the entirety of the current demands of the, of the you know, union, um, there are demands that um, this government, alongside with the leadership of the union, agreed upon, you know, as far back as 2009. Mm. You know, as far back as 2009. Of course, there have been several seasons of renegotiation, you know, um, from memorandum of understanding to memorandum of agreement, you know, in 2020, there was a memorandum of agreement. And the memorandum of agreement implies that the Nigerian state would implement, you know, the demands that ASU and the um, government person personnel had long agreed on since 2009. So the memorandum of agreement of 2020 was meant to put, you know, the entirety of those demands into proper manifestation but you see 2020 2020 have to linger into 2022 because mm. um, really we have a state that is at this material point in time not interested in the funding of public education you know for them the funding of public education apparently has become a burden so for them if they could have a way to relinquish totally any provision of um, educational services they, they are willing to do that. They are willing to go to whatever length to ensure that we happen. This explains why an agreement or a set of agreements agreed upon since 20, 2009, you know, are still, are still the basis upon which also, you know, also uh, had to listen to the, to the call of our members for a one strike. Mm. You know, so it's an aberration, really. So I, I'm, I'm interested to hear what has... The history of of ASU been in Nigeria, the academic staff union of universities, as you've just described, this is not the first time that it's made an attempt to to get the government to accede to its demands. This has been happening since two thousand and nine. 
So could you just tell us a little bit about those previous efforts to win these demands, as well as what the history of the union has been and how it's placed in the broader political landscape of, of Nigeria? Well, as you came um, practically into existence in 1978, 1978 uh, but this is not to say that um, there wasn't um, a sort of union, you know, that had to, like a trade union, that had to protect the interest of um, the generality of Nigerian uh, workers, or Nigerian teachers, rather. Um, the evolution of ASU in 1978 came um, against the backdrop of the need to organize the Nigerian Association of uh, University Teachers, which has a long history. I think around 1965 or thereabouts, you know, that used to be the body that was in charge of um, protecting the democratic rights of um, academic, you know, staff members of, um, of um, you know, the universities across the country at that time. But the formation of ASU in 1978, or let me say the um, transformation, the metamorphosis into uh, uh, ASU as we have it, you know, was against the backdrop of the need for the union to clearly, you know, spell out a mission you know, in 1978, and beyond that, it also came as a result of the crisis that the Nigerian state was in as at that time. You see, before 1978, the union was was uh, an appendage to several other unions. You know, uh, so there wasn't really an independent, uh, um, you know, union that had the interest of um, workers at generality uh, of academic staff at at, at that time. So, but beginning with 1978, you now have, you know, a union that uh, has, you know, an overbearing, you know, influence upon our members in terms of what needed to be done, you know, particularly around their demands. So that gave the, the situation that the Nigerian state was in as at that time, gave it the basis upon which, you know, ASU needed to be formed in 1978. And since 1978, ASU has not just been you know, a union that is interested. You know, of course, the mission of ASU, the primary mission of ASU is to defend the rights of our members, you know, academic staff across the universities. Yeah. Uh, but because ASU is also a union that understands that, you know, there, there, I mean, our struggles as a people has um, some basic connections, you know, and that we must consistently struggle for those connections. ASU you know, really understand that um, the crisis in the, in the educational sector is in a way connected to the crisis in the you know, broader space of the political and economic space of the country. You know, and that is why since 1978, ASU has been at the front line of, uh, you know, unions that have been agitating, demanding, you know, for you know, proper management of the resources of the land. Mm. You know, because ASU understand the fact that the inability of the Nigerian state to commit itself into the funding of the educational sector is also connected to the fact that you know, the Nigerian ruling class really um, is a predatory ruling class that cannot really come up with any workable transformative agenda for the people, you know. And so ASU has been at the value of, uh, for quite some time now, demanding that there must be an eternity, you know. Um, Around the 80s, when this man came up with the OSAP, you know, agenda, Babangida, you know, ASU, you know, members of ASU, the leadership, you know, organized several town hall meetings. You no, know, this is just to tell you how much the union 
you know, as the being in, has been interested in particularly, you know, struggle of the masses, mm. you know. So, ASU during that time, you know, organized several town hall meetings with the ultimate aim of exposing the hills, of exposing, you know, the backward policies, the backward effects that can emanate from an IMF and World Bank, you know, SAP inclined policy. ASU did this. You have to do this. So that in itself, you know, paints a picture of a union that clearly understands the entirety of what you can call, you know, the Nigerian struggle as a people, you know, in that quest for a better society. So these are the things that I think as um, over the years, um, you know, stand out so out. And there have been so many struggles. You know, also have had cause to, you know, um, have had cause to, you know, um, Call on different um, forms of strikes, mm. you know, in, in, in response, you know, to, during the military, you know, there was a particular time where there was a strike because a number of students were killed. Uh, that is in Amadovelo University. You know, this is to tell you the extent at which the union has um, consistently, in fact, during the, you know, brutal days of uh, Sani Abacha, you know, the union had to, I think it was around 90, 1996 or so you know, how to organize a major strike because some of our members were dismissed in one of the important, um, I think, federal universities at that time. So there you have a union that are consistently, you know, faced the Nigerian state with all sorts of, um, um, you know, um, tools, with all sorts of measures, you know, that to ensure that public education is being, you know, the rights of the people to public education is being sustained. But this is not to say that over the years the union haven't, you know, um, haven't went through, haven't gone through the, you know, the brutality of the Nigerian state. At uh, different instances, you know, um, lecturers, particularly those at the leadership of ASU, you know, have been arrested. You know, um, in fact, some have been um, have been assassinated by the Nigerian state. You know. And it's quite unfortunate, really, because you would have thought that um, we are living in a democratic um, settings, you know, but um, that's not be the reality, really. Um, several members of ASU in their quest for struggle for public education, for the sustainability of public education, have got to face the brutality of the Nigerian state with arrest, with assassinations, and what have you. Mm. Anything to add, Said? Yeah, I mean, maybe a couple of things. I should firstly say, Will, thank you for having us on. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of your writing and the work done in Africa as a country, and you know, glad to do my little part to contribute. And it's also really good to be here with um, Temi Tope or Comrade Fagunwa, as we uh, know him locally. Um, you know, I'm also a fan of his, so it's good to be part of this conversation. Um, I want to echo a bit of what um, Fagunwa has said vis-a-vis you know, the backdrop to this current strike and the history of ASU. Um, one of the strong points he's making here is that the union has provided space for radical criticisms of the Nigerian government for decades now. Um, and actually, I should say the university system in general, um, you know, has been one of the kind of alternative spheres where different visions of politics, I mean, left sorry, oriented visions of politics have been articulated in Nigeria um, for a while. And 
I think this is particularly noteworthy in a context where, um, you know, the sort of traditional base of left politics, right, in the mm. um, sort of industrial sector or, or, or large unions um, haven't really existed as much, right? Um, so in that context where, you know, the sort of large-scale industrialization that's occurred elsewhere, um, or even the sort of scale of industrial activity that you see in a place like South Africa hadn't really taken place, um, you know, a lot of the kind of left, as it were, um, emerged within intellectual circles. Um, and that came with a lot of challenges, you know, which, um, you know, we could go into, but I think one of the benefits was that universities, uh, you know, quite a few universities became some of the kind of central arenas of quite radical thinking and radical activity, be they in the form of, you know, sort of conscientization or strikes um, or political education. And as Fagan was saying, this sort of, um, I think, reached uh, a kind of crescendo in the 70s after the Nigerian Civil War. Um, and the, in the period in the Nigerian state was, um, you know, this was a period where African states in general had a slightly more developmentalist, developmentalist orientation. And Nigerian mm -hmm. state in particular was trying to um, rebuild after the war. One of the ways it did this was expanding um, tertiary education. And I should also note that at this point in time, Nigerian academics were paid at rates comparative to academics anywhere in the world. Mm. Um, Nigerian academia was attracting scholars from, like, you know, across the globe, you know, scholars from Jamaica, um, you know, from other parts of Africa, from Tanzania, you know, so there was that sort of foment. And in fact, um, Nigerian, the Nigerian Academy, you know, provided space as well for um, activists coming from South Africa, you know, so you had people who were part of liberation struggles, student activists from Zimbabwe, even from um, South Africa show up in, you know, places like Amodobello University in Zaria or um, the University of Ibadan, uh, you know, in Southwest Nigeria. So the 70s and into the 80s, um, in the period in which ASU emerged was a period of, um, you know, quite vociferous intellectual radicalism. Um, and, you know, this had material effects. Um, and Fagunwa is alluding to this um, strike in uh, 1978, I believe it was, where a student was killed in the University um, of Amodobello, Amodobello University in, in Zaria, um, where, you know, students decided to protest to, um, in opposition to the vice chancellor. And I mean, in Nigeria, as perhaps elsewhere, you know, VCs are these very powerful individuals. Mm -hmm. Um, strike was known as Ali Must Go. And in the process, a student, you know, the, the, the government at the time called in um, police, I believe it was, to the school. Um, and in, you know, an action that's now kind of very familiar to people who watch Nigeria, shot at the peaceful protesters and killed students. Mm. Uh, and, you know, there was a massive outcry against this. Um, and this had quite a damaging uh, effect to the kind of reputation of the government in power at the time. Um, and fast forward to about, you know, less than a decade later in the mid eighties, around the time when the structural adjustment programs were put in place, the universities again became, as Fagan was saying, um, a site of quite heated 
um, protest and critique uh, against this new economic system that was being implemented. And once again, this time the Barangida administration that was in power clamped down quite heavily against the university system with you know, mass dismissals of radical lecturers, with students being rusticated en masse, and that sort of thing. And in fact, there was a famous quote that I think Barangida was the one who, um, who said at the time, where he said that you know, these lecturers continue to teach what they were not paid to teach, mm -hmm. referring you know, almost directly to um, you know, Marxist reading groups and you know, <laughs> the radical um, uh, you know, um, circles that had emerged. So I think to understand the contemporary um, kind of approach of the government to seeming to squeeze public education to understand the way in which structural adjustment had such a dramatic uh, effect on the livelihoods of Nigerian academics, you know, basically decimating their quality of lives. I mean, mm. you know, when Nigerian academics were getting paid, like I say, comparatively, you know, comparable standards or in, in comparable, um, you know, sorts of standards to, to academics elsewhere, that situation is completely sort of um, overturned now where Nigerian academics, you know, very often have to eke out, you know, a living through kind of various kind of side engagements, consulting, or even, you know, farming. Um, so I think that's, you know, to, I, what, I, what I'm trying to say in effect is that this condition that we found ourselves t has a lot to do with where we came from, right? Yeah. Just recognizing that this was one of the um, lingering bastions of serious opposition, mm. you know, it's Zionism and to its economic agenda. And so making a deliberate effort to undercut um, these institutions to prevent, you know, these academics from teaching what they were not supposed to teach. Mm. Uh, so ASU has been one kind of, um, you know, I guess, um, remaining uh, sort of artifact of that period of time. Yeah. And as continues to try to fight, you know, to sort of sustain some of the uh, remaining privileges that Nigerian academics um, enjoy. I mean, you know, I shouldn't say privileges, really. It's kind of what people have earned, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, for that matter, a lot of what ASU is fighting for is kind of, aside from their own sort of salaries and, you know, the conditions of, of employment, there's also, you know, sort of university basics like, test tubes and, you know, science departments, like, you know, better infrastructure, mm -hmm. you know, like bathrooms that function, um, mm -hmm. which anyone who's passed through a Nigerian university, you know, public university can see the urgent need for. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, just to say that the, the history does say a lot about where we've come to, and it's no accident that the government sees the public universities in many ways as a threat. Um, and, and I think that tells us something about, about you know, their, their approach to, you know, in effect, trying to starve this this um, aspect of society. Mm. That's interesting. And and the Babangida quote that you, you brought up takes us in the direction of exactly what I wanted to ask next, which is how did it happen that in Nigeria, it was able to develop the strong independent radical culture at institutions of higher learning because i think typically in the post-colonial setting you'll find that 
institutions of higher learning very quickly become extensions of the state. So they're propped up to achieve the developmental aims of the state and so often have very conservative outlooks. You won't find very many radical academics. The radical academics that are there get ostracized very quickly. And in Nigeria, you have not only the opposite of that, but you have a radical academic class who almost exists in 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 an almost self-sustaining way, which is to say that uh, related to what you're both mentioning now, that Nigeria kind of lacked uh, the base for an industrial working class, as has been the case in many other places. And usually that's one way you see uh, a radical academic class emerge, one that attaches itself to a pre-existing sort of uh, working class movement. But that doesn't sound like it's it's been much of the case in, in Nigeria. So, so how was it able to, to emerge in that way? How was ASU and the politics that it exemplifies able to emerge? And, and why did it have to be the case that the only way the Nigerian government could undercut this is by financially squeezing it rather than going the route of just outright repression, which is usually what happens? Okay, maybe I could take a stab and then Fagua could, could fill in the many gaps. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I shouldn't downplay the f- repression that has occurred. I mean, mm. you know, it's worth saying that the um, sort of squeezing the university through underfunding hasn't been the only approach. Um, so as I was suggesting, there have been, you know, sackings of, of, of radical lecturers. There have been, you know, people having their passports seized, you know, mm. in the case of um, Patrick Wilmot, who's one example of, you know, the sort of uh, emigre or um, expat radical uh, intellectuals that were part of the Nigerian academic scene at, at a certain point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there has been that repressive aspect as well. And I should also say that um, while the culture of, um, you know, sort of opposing um, authoritarianism remains within the Nigerian academy, um, the kind of overtly leftist radicalism of the 70s and 80s has diminished quite a bit. I mean, you know, here, Fagunwa can correct me if I'm overstating that, but, you know, you, you could almost say that that was a, you know, that was a bit of a flash in the pan in some respects, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't want to minimize it, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the level of, of energy and, um yeah, of, of, of kind of the, the extent as well, just sort of in terms of the spread of those sorts of thinkers within Nigerian Academy has, has definitely diminished, um, you know, for all the reasons that we've been discussing. Um, so why did it emerge in the first place? I think it's quite an interesting question. And, um, you know, it probably isn't a very straightforward answer, but I could think of maybe a few factors that might have contributed. Mm. Um, and one would be the fact that, um, so because of Nigeria's federal structure, um, you know, like a regional political parties emerged to oppose the national dominant party, right? So there wasn't ever a single dominant party mm. that had control across the entirety of the country. And these regional parties invested in a variety of ways to oppose. 
And one of the ways was building these regional universities and allowing some space for various kinds of critique. Which, you know, is why I think that, you know, say the Southwest University of Ibadan in particular, you know, and Quara State also was one area where you saw a lot of these radical intellectuals kind of find a home. Um, and then in other contexts in, in Northern Nigeria, like Kaduna State, um, you know, where you have the Amadabela University is another place, um, you know, and, and sorry, Bayero University in Kano. These are other places where kind of, you know, a few of these radical intellectuals found a home. But these were contexts where opposition parties were dominant. Mm. Uh, so, for instance, in Zaria and Kano, you had what was actually a self-proclaimed socialist party in power. Um, you know, the what, what was earlier called the um, NEPU, the Northern Element Progressive Union, and then became the People's Redemption Party. Uh, and this party actually drew a lot of intellectual resources from the campuses, you know, so you had kind of radical historians like, you know, pe people not too dissimilar to Fagunwa at that period in time, uh, Bala Usman, uh, actually actively joined the party and work in the government house, you know, and so there were even debates within uh, sort of radical circles in the University of Zaria where, you know, the campus Marxists were opposing the government house Marxists, right? Which is such a far cry from the Nigeria we have today. <laughs> from anywhere on the continent. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, you could say. So I would say that the kind of emergence of these regional power bases that oppose the center probably created a bit more space for, you know, the campuses to um, cultivate these kinds of radical cultures. Um, but it may be that uh, Fagua has a few other factors to add, as, particularly from, from the perspective of a historian. Let, let me just add that, uh, of course, um, Said analysis is very, very, you know, um, straight on point. But also to add that, uh, I think, as we used to say, um, traditionally, that, um, you know, it is our social being that determines our mm. consciousness, you know. Yeah. I, I think something very, very fundamental occurred in the 80s and in the 90s. Uh, because when you look at um, the 80s and the 90s, you agree with the fact that um, we had a chunk of, um, you know, uh, scholar activists, you know, that um, sprang up here and there in the country, you know. And then, I mean, we are talking about the likes of uh, the vibrant um, Claudake, Balausman, you know, and all of this, um, you know, they are, they are, I mean, the whole generation of that time, you know, and then... We, we could identify the fact that all of the Shegon Shoba inclusive, you know, we could identify the fact that, you know, they they were able to play a major role in giving the Nigerian state and also the the generality of students, you know, a mind of theirs. And then for me, I think we cannot also discuss the radicalization of the campuses during this, you know, during that time mm. uh, without not making references to you know, the IMA policies and the, the effect of the IMA policies and the World Bank policies of that you know, time, you know, because the problems emanated from the decision of the suggestion, or let me say the policy of SAP, you know, that, um, that um, Babangida, you know, uh, ignorantly had to implement, you know, because it was during that time that um, the the and the Nova, you know, 
of um, the public institution, higher education to private, um, in, you know, individuals. It was around that time that, you know, that project actually commenced, which we are still, you know, noticing it to this time, you know. And what they did then was um, to remove, you know, basic, what you have called, you know, subsidized existence of the campuses. Mm. In the sense that um, students uh, found out that uh, the catering services that they've enjoyed for, for years, you know, had stopped. You know, um, the servers have stopped serving them. You know, on the order of the military government, beyond that, you know, school fees suddenly went up. Beyond that, um, hostel accommodations suddenly became a problem mm. because the the agenda of SAP then was that um, the government has no business in funding education mm. and that if the government is going to take to do to those loans to those evil loans then the government must have a way to pay back or ways to pay back and one of the ways they recommended you know for the nigerian to the nigerian state then was that um you know Look at your public education and see how you can defund that um, sector as a means of you getting back our monies. So they went, of course, the government had got to implement that because the government, uh, the military government uh, was a criminal government. So they didn't even think twice, you know, before implementing that uh, policy. So the removal of those things, those, you know, subsidized uh, tendencies on the campuses eventually had um, you know an effect you know a bandwagon effect on the existence of lecturers also on the campuses mm. because what that meant is that it became problematic for lecturers to be able to get you know increments in their salary in fact during this period as we have added lecturers were considered to be the poorest you know, within the Nigerian system, actually, wow. you know, mm. to be a lecturer in the 80s, in the 90s, was synonymous to be a poor person. Farmers mm. were doing better than lecturers. Mm. You know, it was around this period that the pay, the you know, the salary structure of lecturers was absolutely truncated. So lecturers didn't get any increment. Nothing was really happening at that time. And you see, we had several agitations. You know, the early Moscow strike protest movement that um, Zai just told us of, you know, was uh, symptomatic of this reality. The backwardness of the Nigerian military regime to have implemented the SAP um, whole thing and what have you. So the radicalization of not just the um, members of the members of um, ASU or the studentry at that time, you know, the radicalization was in response you know, to the economic condition of the country as at that time. Mm. You know, because people have got to react it. But we must also identify the fact that within the intellectual circle for quite some time, in fact, before the 80s, we've had identifiable masses, masses intellectuals, you know, within the university system. Um, I think at a point in time in the 70s or thereabouts, um, Nigerian um, academics, you know, they had, they had um, a particular Marxist, um, I've forgotten the name of the Marxist um, group. You know, the group 
was so influential that um, it was highly recognized in the Soviet Union that consistent materials were being sent. And these were, you know, intellectuals, these were university lecturers. Mm -hmm. You know, ideological materials were consistently being sent to them from the, then, I mean, from the defunct um, Soviet Union and also from um, China, communist um, China. So all of these um, things then, you know, snowballed into, you know, the reactions that have got to happen in the 80s and in the 90s. I'm also so hard that when you look at what is happening today, the generality of Nigerian, you know, academic staff have had enough. Why? Because the last time there was, um, I mean, the last time there was an agreement that the salary structure should be, you know, um, worked on. The mm. last time there was an agreement like that was in 2009. Mm. The last time that they agreed that this salary structure should change was in 2009. And look at what has happened since 2009. You know, the upper inflation that um, the economy of the country has been experiencing for quite some time now. Mm. It has been crazy, you know. And so across the university system, you have lecturers that have had enough, and as a result of that, more than any other time in our recent history, ASU is getting you know, the generality of the support of mass of academic staff. Mm. This is, you know, again, another classical example of how our social being therefore determines our consciousness, yeah. the rate and the level of our consciousness. Because, in fact, the Nigerian state right now is more terrible in the sense that they are now showing it to the faces of academic staff that they are not interested in funding education. Yeah. What do I mean by this? You have the NUC chairman, there is the National University Commission, you know, the commission that is to be in charge of the establishment and also the entitled of the modus operandi that is involved in, you know, running a university in this country. You have the executive secretary, like the big ogre of that particular commission you know, saying publicly, publicly that we haven't had enough, that where they want or what they are going to and what they want to do is for us to have more private universities in the country. Yeah. As, as a, you know, as a systematic way of killing public education. Mm. This is a director or a man that should be in charge of the happenings, you know, across federal universities and state universities or public universities generally. But the audacity, you know, for this man to come out publicly to say that they want more power. And you are in, I mean, we all know the limitations of the private universities, you know, how much students have to work their fingers, parents of students have to work their fingers to the bones to be able to pay, you know, for the tuition fees and what have you. So the intention really is that they want to destroy public education and hand over all of this you know, institutions to private individuals to control so that, you know, education will not become the most, apparently, then, I mean, gradually education is becoming the most expensive commodity in this country. Mm. Mm. And, you know, you cannot also analyze all of these issues without not making references to the loans that this government, the backward loans that this government over the years, since, it, since the government came into power in 2015, had gotten from you know, IMF and World Bank. I mean, one cannot really discuss these issues, the indifference of the Buhari-led government, you know, the indifference of Buhari-led government to public education. Mm. It just stems from the fact that the government is interested in, you know, closing every possible doors that, uh, that were enabled in order for them to be able to pay back, you know, the 
blood money that they took from all of these, you know, um, backward international finance capital organizations. Mm. So I'm saying that the radicalization of our members now is stems, you know, from the, you know, glaring, you know, um, fact that this government is not interested in public education. And uh, what that means is that if something is not done as soon as possible, you know, Nigerian uh, lecturers, academic staff members are at the verge of losing their jobs. So something has got to be done. So, so asking, time, just to ask a question about what can be done, it's interesting that this issue, the last time, like you said, the last time an agreement had been reached was in 2009. And... Coincidentally, 2009, I guess, in the eyes of, of many analysts, is the beginning of the breakdown of the neoliberal order uh, with the onset of the 2008 financial crisis. And then you have this period of, of interregnum, I suppose, to, to use Gramscian terms, when there's no competing social vision and morbid symptoms abound everywhere. And I suppose in, in recent in, in the recent period with the onset of COVID, it's felt like maybe we're starting to to view what a post neoliberal world looks like, at least in the West. So the, the question I want to get to is as you as you've both described, it's the economic conditions of Nigeria which serve as the impetus for radicalization on campuses. But I'm curious to know what is the nature of the radicalization that is happening now? Because one thing that does seem to, at least from, from afar, distinguish it from the radicalization that was happening in the 80s and 90s is that back then, I guess, the, the Cold War and the post-colonial period contributed to, I guess, a general permeation of, of consciousness uh, across yeah. society. And one thing that I think neoliberalism was really successful at doing was undercutting that consciousness, creating a subject that was, to put it over simplistically, consumerist and predisposed to accessing uh, life's needs primarily as commodities. So looking at the strike that's happening now, what do you think are the prospects that, for example, it could germinate into something broader, bringing masses of students, for example, uh, the disruptions that are happening now on campus. How are students reacting to that? Uh, because effectively what, I, what I'd like to know is that could this be, could this sow the seeds for a kind of fees must fall in Nigeria? Because as you've both said, the issues go beyond, um, beyond the concerns of academics and has to do with the decaying infrastructure the lack of resources to universities and generally the fact that public sector education being defunded means that most people don't have access to an education. But privatization is the trend. And it seems like in, in, in the midst of the decay of public sector universities, a lot of people are making the decision to migrate to, to private sector universities. So what are the prospects that this can germinate into a broader a broader uh, resistance to to this privatization and one that uh, unites both academics students and general university staff okay um, I know you want us to look forward but let me look back briefly 
only because you know mm. I think maybe um, the just more recent past, not going as far back now as the eighties and nineties, which we've been doing, mm. um, might tell us a little bit about what we might expect coming forward. Um, so you know, you were pointing out at the start of the show that um, this isn't the first strike we've seen in the past couple of years. Um, so in 2020, there was, you know, a strike similar to this actually throughout the year for for about nine months of, of that year. Um, and towards the end of the year is when we saw NSARS break out. Um, yeah. And I, yeah. I've heard a number of analysts do this, and I don't think they're entirely wrong in doing so, um, draw a connection between um, the fact that so many students were at home in October of 2020 and the outbreak of the NSARS protest. Mm. You know, so students do feel the impact of this, obviously. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's an extent to which that frustration can be channeled back against, you know, the folks who are in power, who are responsible for um, the situation at hand. But I guess NSARS, you know, if it, if it points to that sort of more hopeful possibility, it also points to slightly less hopeful one in, in, in certain respects, which is that, um, you know, I guess in part because of the kind of wider context you're laying out, Will, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to do with this interregnum, um, and, you know, just, um, you know, I guess what one might, relying on some jargon called the neoliberal subjectivity, mm. you know, that we are kind of undergoing at the moment, you know, it's quite difficult to kind of get that frustration that's in the sort of general public and particularly among students to be channeled in more direct ways, mm. you know, um, to kind of articulate clearer demands that are particular to the universities or to their own well-being. Um, you know, NSARS, of course, had certain kind of um, slivers of that, but of course, it also sort of, you know, hit various obstacles, you know, along the way and, um, you know, struggled to kind of cohere into something more mm. uh, sustained. So, I, unfortunately, I think um, that you know, those sorts of contextual factors continue to pose limitations to the capacity of um, the lecturers to um, kind of link up with the students and, you know, formulate a slightly more coherent approach to, um, you know, agitating for the resuscitation of, of, of the university system. Yeah. Um, I, another aspect of this to, to point out, and it's kind of painful to do so as a Nigerian academic myself, um, but Commiseration. Yeah. You know, but the truth is that with the, the culture on campuses have, have changed a bit since, you know, the sort of late 70s and through the 80s, the, the period that we're kind of nostalgically referring to, such that I think there's been more of a distance created between students and lecturers than you had back then. You know, and you can see the kind of effects of this in the sort of scandals of abuse that. Um, you know, unfortunately crop up, you know, now and then on, on, on Nigerian campuses. You know, where, where there was that radical, slightly more non-hierarchical relationship between lecturers and students, you know, where kind of both sides saw their struggles are shared. I think now that, you know, there's crept in a slightly more hierarchical structure of, of, of relationship where you know, by and large, a lot of academics are fairly removed from the day-to-day -day lives of students and vice versa. And, you know, there's this sort of respectability culture that has emerged. 
Mm. You know, and at the same time, private universities are arising and students have kind of embodied much more of a hustle, you know, get by mentality. You know? mm -hmm. So, you know, seeing themselves as part of something bigger that is shared can I be becomes, becomes um, um, difficult for all of these reasons. Hello, can so, I be happy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can hear you, Fabian. We can hear you. Oh, oh great. Uh, my sincere apologies. I had um, a network issue. No problem, no problem at all. Yeah, yeah perhaps you I think, think two things for me, you know, has been able to come out of this um, whole radicalization that has been going on. First of which is that today you have a union that is saying that the alternative for the Nigerian state, you know, the great at which we are, I mean, the extent at which we've gotten ourselves into, or the Nigerian ruling class have gotten us into, you know, the extreme poverty the extreme state of unemployment, the extreme state of inequality, that, um, you know, the only way out which all of these contradictions, you know, the contradictions of our post-colonial realities can be solved is through a socialist Nigeria. Mm -hmm. Asu came out publicly on this note at one of our, at one of our you know, important uh, neck. I think it was, you know, the neck meeting that was held sometimes in 2000. 13 or 14. I am not so accurate on this now. But I think it was around that time that also came up publicly to say that you know, there are no two ways about it, that the only way out which you know, the social conditions of the mass of the Nigerian people can change for the best is through a socialist you know, policy or you know, uh, various forms of uh, socialist uh, policies. So for me, that is an expression of, you know, the consistent radicalization of um, a union. Mm -hmm. Also a union that has that foresight and that understanding, that clarity of mission, you know, in spite of the inadequacies that are bound within the Nigerian political, you know, social, social realities and condition, you know, uh, 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 state. Let me also say that at this time, um, quite remarkably, and we must point it out, is that you now have mass of Nigerian students extending their solidarities and their support to us. Yeah. And you know, we have never seen it, we have never seen it, you know, we have never had this this much at um, a Zona meeting that I attended recently, you know, for our union has you know, there, there was a debate around you know the solidarities that also have been getting over the ongoing strike action from the mass of the Nigerian people. And we were for, I mean, we had to force ourselves to admit that more than any other time in the course of our struggle, you know, we've gotten, you know, a well-recognizable support from the rank and file of our students. And that mm -hmm. there's a need for us to appreciate. Because in spite of the backwardness of NAS, you know, that is the National Association of uh, Nigerian Students you know, they had to admit that, you know, a section of them had to admit that the ongoing strike is not a resultant effect of the backwardness of any other person, any other institution, any other structure, but that of the Nigerian state. That the Nigerian state should be held responsible for the ongoing strike action. Yeah. Because of a refusal, because of a refusal to you know, implement demands that 
you know, the government had entered with us so as far back as 2009. You know, demand, set of demands that the government, in fact, had to renegotiate with ASU in, an under, in what we ended up as a memorandum of agreement in 2020. So you see, that is a reflection of the fact that there is an ongoing state of consciousness within the rank and file of students that we must really, really acknowledge. But we must acknowledge this rising state of consciousness among the rank and file of our students because it has now even gotten bad even within their own quarters. Mm -hmm. What do I mean by this? The state of, you know, the state of um, lack of infrastructures, you know, across the campuses seems to be an issue, you know, because it has gotten more bad, more odious to the fact that, to the point that, you know, uh, today, students on the campuses mm -hmm. are losing their lives to issues such as the backwardness of the health center, you know. Um, earlier this year, I think sometimes in January, a student lost, unfortunately, lost a life in um, Upper Femaula University. Mm. You know, over what? Lack of infrastructural, you know, uh, amenities, basic amenities, you know. Yeah. You know, because the students lost a life. I mean, she, she, unfortunately, you know, she stepped into a soccer way and that was it for her unfortunately mm. then also about a week after that particular unfortunate incident a student had to die in the university of Benin at the university so-called at at uh, center mm. in these two campuses there were spontaneous protests and demonstrations so mm. the point i'm making is that the support that we are getting from the rank and file of the students today emanates from, you know, the reality that confronts they themselves. And the reality is that if we do not do something about this, you know, in the coming period, our lives generally will be at a great danger. Mm. And you see, that is why ASU is not, you know, a union that you can accused for being selfish in any way yeah so do you think do you think do you think this might become a kind of given the the high levels of support that students are showing the spontaneous protests that are happening to address their grievances of a lack of infrastructure on campus do you think this might become a nationwide movement uh, along the lines of what we saw in South Africa with with FISMAS 4. It sounds like Saeed is a little bit more skeptical, but you're a little bit more optimistic. What do you think has to be done as far as organizing is concerned to galvanize students across campuses in Nigeria and to to sort of elevate this into, into demands for the broader restructuring of Nigeria's higher education system? Well, I, I would say at the level of ASU, um, the union has agreed that uh, there must be a consistent relationship, at least in, in the course of the ongoing strike action, with um, the student bodies. And this relationship must be within the context of, you know, ideological 
education, establishing grants for proper ideological education. And you see, for me, I think experiences teaches anyone better about any reality. And what I'm, I'm saying is because, again, when you look at the trends, about um, a week ago or so, a group of students blocked, you know, the express, Elisha, Elisha on the express road, you know, they yeah. blocked it for about three hours. This is just last week, you know. And so what that means is that students on their own, not listening to any bureaucrat uh, element or any institutional, you know, um, element or any association whatsoever, they are not carrying out independent actions on their own. Mm. They are carrying out, yes, they are. You know, mm. um, mass of students are not carrying out independent actions on their own. And so what that really means is that within the you know, shortest period of time, uh, this current um, state, you know, the ongoing situation, if it's not been resolved, as soon as possible, the mass of Nigerian students will rise. Mm. And then, you know, as it has been said by the union, the emergence of Nigerian students or the Nigerian populace at this time will be far, far, far better than what we are during the NSAS, 2020 NSAS struggle. Mm. Yeah, because people don't really make people don't really make the connections. The NSAS struggle was able to, you know, emerge also because it emerged at a time when ASU was on an ongoing strike action. In fact, the longest that we've had in the history of the country mm. in 2020, you know. And so the situation of police brutality came side by side, side, by side at a time where we were having what an ongoing strike. And students, many of the students who have been um, rendered, um, you know, inactive back at home, you know, took up the mantle of leadership of that particular struggle. So what that means is that the Nigerian state will be, you know, shooting herself on the foot, you know, by not addressing the demands of the union. Mm. And for me, for me, and for many of, I think, many of our, our members, as we have had publicly, many of our colleagues, you know, the commitment to this ongoing strike is more alive than any other thing. And that's why members are now sending messages to the leadership that we would not compromise. And um, also, we are not going to return to the classes if we do not get, you know, practical confirmation of the implementation of the demands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. By so doing, lecturers may get their alert, must get, you know, um, evidence of the salary, salary, I mean, of their salaries that have been reviewed. By so doing, the IPPIS, you know, World Bank, the World Bank IMF projects wrapped up within the context of IPPIS must be totally expunged from the university system. I mean, some of these things are not being done that they are not returning to the class. Yeah. So I'm saying that, well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not really into optimism, but I'm saying that you know, conditions will automatically and naturally and scientifically solver themselves because this state, the Nigerian state is in a mess right now, you know. The Nigerian state is in a mess so much so that it has gotten itself into the deepest part of the, you know, deepest part of the ocean. 
Yeah. Right now, you know, the state is just as confused as hell. Yeah. So I'm saying that ordinarily, naturally, scientifically, natural conditions would manifest and, you know, there will be a backlash. So and speaking of those conditions, see. speaking of those conditions and, and thinking about what's happening next year in Nigeria, which is that the country's going into another election, given these conditions of, of rising discontent, of activity brewing, it feels like there's been an ongoing historical process that includes the nine-month-long strike that you mentioned, that includes NSARS, that includes what's happening today, which can create a, a pole of attraction for, for different forces, so to speak, to come together to, to mount, I think, a serious challenge on Nigeria's political system. What are the prospects of that? And, and what are the formations that could possibly serve to, to bring these different forces together? I'm thinking of, of the you know, African Action Congress, which is a political party. It's connected to uh, the Coalition for a Revolution. And that came out of, of Revolution Now. So how does, how does ASU and this action fit into that? And trying to, to not necessarily predict the future, but thinking about how, how radicals and the left in Nigeria can, can capitalize on this moment, uh, how, what would that look like? And, and, and thinking about you know, building power, uh, what are the vehicles for building power um, from the strike and from all of the other uh, action that has preceded it? Um, well, you know, the, the union is a fighting union. And um, you see, one of the things also uh, that I think have inspired lots of our members is that the union will not speak publicly over an issue without not um, committing ourselves into it. So when ASU sometimes ago declared, again around 2013 or 14, that um, the only way out for the, I mean, from the um, awkward situation the Nigerian state uh, unfortunately had found itself in is through a socialist, you know, alternative. The union back it with practical actions. And what do I mean by this? Um, in spite mm. of how inconsequential it was, you know, in terms of um, membership, rate of membership, and what have you, in the, 2000, in the 2015, during the 2015 elections, you know, um, some socialist elements, you know, under the banners of um, Sefanistan, the Socialist Party of Nigeria, and um, some radical elements also in some, you know, working class-based political parties, you know, mm. um, came up publicly to, I mean, to declare their intent for running for, of running for political positions. And we also observed that ASU mandated some of our members, and this is just, um, you know, perhaps, you know, a, a practical manifestation of you know, the position of ASU that the socialist alternative is what the Nigerian state needs at this time. Mm. ASU, you know, sent some of our members to not only solidarize with those aspirants, but to also, you know, actively get themselves involved in their, you know, electoral, electoral electionary processes. I know this... I know this for sure in the state of, um, in the case of Oshun State, where, you know, the Socialist Party of Nigeria, you know, had a gubernatorial 
you know, candidates. Also, mm. members of Union Shun, you know, the Oshu State University, you know, solidarize with that candidate. Mm. Not behind closed doors, publicly. Mm. So for me, that is nothing but a practical manifestation of the ideals that holds Atsu together. Uh, about the question of what needed to be done and where we must go from here, yeah, I think, you know, situations, you know, fortunately for us, the truth seems to be on our side at this time. So really we, we have, you know, um, on the surface, you know, we have lesser work to do in mobilizing the rank and file of the people because the social conditions seems to be so backward that people are now reaching their own private conclusions on the alternative, mm -hmm. you know. And you see, uh, for me, I think that ASU is also ready, you know, to take the mantle of leadership on the question of the alternative. And I'm saying this because in the past, some of us, we have thought that NLC, the Nigerian Labour Congress, was going to take that mantle of leadership. But consistently, that union, unfortunately, as a result of the backwardness of our bureaucrats, have consistently proved, you know, incapable, not really incapable, um, you know, unwilling mm. you know, to take that mantle of um, leadership. Not that um, they are incapable. That union is capable, just that uh, the bureaucrats, you know, the labor bureaucrats are not really interested in, you know, fighting, I mean, fighting with the masses or in fact fighting within their own union, you know. Uh, so um, I'm not going to use the word optimism again, but I'm saying that when it comes, when all chips are down, which are going to be down anytime soon, as is willing to. Uh, but you can see again that the generality of the people, whether you like it or not, you know, they've reached their conclusion about the existing bourgeois political parties. You know, um, you go, you join the public, you know, buses, it is the same thing. You go to the markets, you know, centers, it is the same thing. You know, you go to all public spaces, it's about the same thing. People are saying that uh, this backward ruling pol political party, APC, you know, putting up um, another criminal like um, uh, Bola Ahmed Tinubu for the possibility of um, a presidential aspirant, you know, that um, it's going to fail. Mm. Only people are reaching this conclusion. Mm. They are reaching this conclusion, whether in Lagos, whether in Ibadan, whether in Oshun, everywhere, mass of the people, you know, are, 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 are connecting these issues. You know, how beating their chest coming up that they are not going to support this existing backward political party and its so-called oppositional political party. So for me, we are on the right path. Yeah, well, look, I mean, let me, first of all, echo one aspect of what uh, Fagoma said vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, some very laudable um, displays of solidarity that we have seen from students. You know, so the uh, example he was citing of the students in Oshun um, and a few other examples, you know, I think there were student protests in um, Benin as well, um, are really worth highlighting, and that sort of thing is, is quite encouraging. Um, but, you know, I, I, I really don't want to be a wet blanket, right? Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, I guess it certainly hasn't, and I, I think Fagamon would even agree with this, it certainly hasn't reached the desired level. Um, or, or the sorts of things we saw 
um, doing NSRAs and uh, or even you know, fees must fall. Now, I think, um, you know, to, to Fagmo's point about the, the prevailing conditions, um, I think it's the level of support we have seen does have to do with how exhausted people are with the current government. You know, coming towards the end of an eight-year term, um, you know, it, there is that kind of general perception that, you know, the government in power has by and large failed. And, you know, that's also kind of emphasized by events seemingly every week, you know, where one ridiculous thing happens after the other. And I, I mean, where we are now is where there are long queues outside of fueling stations because despite being, you know, oil producing country in Nigeria has severe fuel scarcities at the moment. Mm. You know, so I think these kinds of conditions tell you something about why it is that, you know, say students are, and the general public, I would say, is maybe slightly more supportive of the ASU strike this time around than, you know, might have occurred, you know, in, in previous iterations is because people are just sort of fed up. And, and I think oppositional forces in society are, are gaining a little more support. You know, so I'll, I guess I'll, I'll definitely admit and echo that aspect. But in terms of how this feeds into the coming election or, or where it goes from here, I mean, I definitely, I, I want to believe that um, that there is sort of a groundswell, but I'm not quite sure that's the case. I mean, for one, you know, the main, you know, what, what, uh, Fagumar has not inaccurately referred to as bourgeois parties, mm. uh, have been organizing society for now two decades, right? Mm. Uh, and I mean, the sort of radical parties that are emerging or re-emerging um, are putting up quite valiant efforts in some localities, but we haven't really seen the scale of national organizing that these parties have managed to put up. And, you know, of course, the fact that they've had access to state funds, both in the case of the ruling party APC now and, and the sort of main opposition party PDP has helped with that, no doubt. Um, but they've also kind of had a governing record, right? Mm. Um, they can point to certain things that, despite the fact that they fall far short of expectations and, you know, in a lot of cases, there they might be mirages, they can point to sort of, quote, tangible um, the, sort of outcomes that their their time in office has delivered mm. you know and i know that's sort of painful to say and again I, you know there's so many caveats to to put in place but people who who support these parties and are people who support these parties can point to reasons why they do so you know yeah um, that are tied to their their their, their legacies in, in in power so i i think it's worth just kind of being realistic about what the prospects are facing parties that, again, I mean, are, are, have been organizing for the past two decades, have um, power across the country, you know, have several governorships, have like substantial representation in, in the houses of assembly, you know, or even have the presidency. Um, so it's a formidable task ahead of the, of, of, of the, you know, radical alternatives. I mean, and to say a little bit more about what those alternatives are, yeah, there's the African yeah. Tied to um, you know revolution now and coalition for revolution that you have um, you know talked about and they remain active to some extent. I think they they they've probably been more active. I mean, 
Pagawan might have a different perspective, but I would say they've probably been more active in organizing protests and being part of NSARS, in carrying out, you know, forms of political education as well. And mm. just in seeing in the public consciousness through even, you know, Omoyele Shore's court case, you know, so I think you might see in particularly some localities, um, you know, some um, strides electorally. Now, I mean, would that amount to winning kind of executive offices at the governorship level um, or at the, at the national level? I think that would be probably a little surprising. And, I, you know, I really hope I can sort of eat my words eventually. You know, I'll be very happy if I'm proven wrong by this. But I, I just am not sure that we're quite at the level where we can see substantial electoral victories um, based on the level of organizing, given also the sort of context of repression, right? Yeah. Um, that, that the AAC, you know, and similar parties, the Socialist Party of Nigeria also has faced. The Socialist Party of Nigeria, for instance, was deregistered at a certain point. Mm. So they focus their attention on doing, you know, more sort of organizing initiatives because they were spending a lot of time fighting to be, you know, reinstated as a party. Mm. Um, you know, another force that has reemerged now is the People's Redemption Party, which I've already talked about in this um, episode because the PRP um, is, I think, the longest running party in Nigerian history because um, it traces its origins back to the Northern Elements Progressive Union. And that was the party that, you know, um, um, Bala Usman, the radical historian yeah. I was um, comparing to Fagunwa, um, was a part of. Um, and PRP has re-emerged. PRP has also attracted um, the former chairman of Nigeria's Electoral Commission, um, Atahiro Jega, who's a kind of huge national figure. Mm. Um, you know, so that, that's been ground for optimism in some circles. Um, but of course, the party is more than one person. And, um, you know, PRP traditionally has actually had much more of a base in northern Nigeria um, than it has elsewhere in the country. And that's good because a lot of the radical parties that I've been describing, AAC and, and Socialist Party, have tended to be more prominent in the South, right? So yeah. there's kind of, a, you know, what seems to be a, a PR, a sort of resurgent PRP emerging. Mm -hmm. is, but, you know, these efforts are, you know, like we're describing them under various banners because they aren't necessarily <laughs> coherent. Yeah. Um, and so that also limits the ultimate effect, you know, mm -hmm. to a certain particular at the national level. Mm -hmm. And there are other initiatives that one can mention. There's um, the Alliance for Surviving, surviving COVID-19 and beyond, you know, sort of sprung up in the midst of, of the pandemic, but has survived, you know, itself <laughs> has survived, uh, you know, in this sort of, I don't know which, what this period is now, the end of the pandemic or when we're just pretending it, it's no longer as bad as it was before. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, the, the Alliance is largely composed of you know, the organizations we've talked about and others, you know, radical unions, um, you know, other kind of um, radical civic groups and um, other parties that, that, that have sort of um, escaped my memory right now. And they also have been discussing kind of floating a larger kind of coalition forum for radical parties. So mm. that's what kind of keeping an eye on. And there's an extent to which given the kind of large scale disenchantment with um, 
the particularly the ruling party, but you know maybe even the, the main opposition PDP, you might see um, you know a coalition of that sort gain more support than it otherwise would would have. Um, but ultimately, I guess I haven't yet seen the kind of mobilization that would convincingly suggest that the two main parties should be worried. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to I want to ask a question on that, and maybe maybe as a concluding question, I think you. It's a very interesting discussion, and the the parallels between Nigeria and South Africa are almost like for like. And mm. in one key respect being that in South Africa, similarly, you have an exhaustion with the established political parties, both the ruling party that has governed since the end of apartheid, as well as for the official opposition. You've had some challengers who emerge supposedly to the left of the African National Congress, but really are kind of economic nationalists, sort of uh, the EFF, the Economic Freedom Fighters is what I'm referring to. Um, you have organizations that are to the left of the ANC, like the Socialist Revolutionary Workers Party that performed absolutely poorly at our last general election, not even amassing the number of seats required to enter into parliament. And I suppose as as the radical left in in Africa in general, I think has has been across the board thrown into I think a, a moment of of deep soul searching. Uh, a question I've been trying to figure out how to put exactly um, on this, and I'm going to ask it to the both of you, is that I think you know on the one hand, as you've both mentioned, there are a lot of objective challenges to organizing in Nigeria. The task as you said, Said is formidable. And I think that all of this is going to be decided in and through organizing and nothing can be a substitute for that. But something I've often wondered is if, you know, the radical left makes its work harder than it needs to be through its messaging. And to try and find a careful way to put this, what I mean by this is that um, in, in, in our... In, in our organizing, you don't want to ever be too many steps ahead of where society is at now. And so there's a way in which I think, especially given the constraints of the moment, were an electorate to hear words such as socialism or revolution uh, or whatever else it might be, that can be a, a that can cause a recoil of, 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 of sorts. Um, and so yeah, the best way I can put this is that, you know, there's a there's a scholar here in South Africa recently passed away, Ben Turok, and in one of the last interviews he gave before he passed away, is he said that um, whenever we have reference to Marxism or Leninism or all of these uh, giants of, of theory that we often do have recourse to, that's, that's pie in the sky. And what we need to do is to start meeting people where they're at and, and go on the strength of our program and through that, win people over to the broader political vision. And I'm just wondering here, and maybe this is this is me making the mistake of of over overemphasizing how important things such as messaging is. But um, I guess, what what role do you think that plays in 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 organizing in Nigeria at the moment? Uh, especially considering the fact that levels of consciousness, as we as we've been discussing earlier have declined 
uh, substantially um, since the 70s and 80s. I mean, in addressing the topical issue that you've raised, and I think it's topical because uh, we've had reason to be, I mean, to argue amongst ourselves mm. on the best methods at which we can apply to galvanize the mass of our people to our side. And it is correct. You no, know, we don't want to get the people, you know, confused more around, you know, terminologies and concepts. Uh, capitalism, socialism, Marxism, revolution, and all of that. I mean, mm. because we, again, draw inspiration, you know, from the conclusions of Amika Cabra. And what did Cabra say? Cabra said, very, very simple, that um, you see, the mass of the people are not interested in the, you know, beautification uh, of the ideas. Yeah. Really. Yeah. The mass of the people are not interested in, are not interested in how articulate you are. You know, essentially, the mass of the people are interested in how best they can send their words to schools. You know, uh, they meet in their port. You know, basically the material things. If you can provide this, that's all right. You know, you get on with whatever needed to be, you know, uh, gotten on with. So that point is a relevant point. Mm. And that is why for us, we, we understand the fact that, you know, we must get, that is, I mean, we, we, we are against the conception that we fight for the people. No, no one fights for the people. We fight with the people. Mm. And that is why, I mean, the role of any revolutionary, you know, vanguard movement is to be within the mass of the people, not outside the mass of the people. Mm -hmm. So in our, in our organizing efforts over the years, I think the error which uh, we have been making is to think that um, the level of consciousness of the, I mean, that we are the same level of consciousness with the mass of the people, mm. which is really not, you know, because the mass of the people, yes, you know, they understand or they are quite aware of the fact that something extremely wrong is, is uh, you know, is, um, is going on, that there's something wrong with this state, you know, and that something needed to be done. But the question of what needed to be done it's what the mass of people really do not have an idea of. So what role do we have to play within that context? Our role is not to, you know, overlook, you know, the inadequacies of the people or to look down on the people as a result of their inability to be able to articulate the alternative. Mm. You know, because to some of our persons, we, have, we, we think that mainly by articulating socialism and all of that as the people, but we must, again, not run into the trap of... You know, because it is the same Cabra that says that there no lies to the masses. Mm -hmm. I claim no easy victories. Mm -hmm. what, is, what is it for us to do? What is it for us to do is to see how we can articulate these positions, these alternatives, against the backdrop of the languages that our people, and by the world languages, I'm not referring to, you know, languages on the surface. Mm. I'm saying that we must see how best we can transmit, we can translate, we can, you know, uh, propagate these ideas without not necessarily relying on these big concepts, particularly concepts or words that have nothing to do with our social realities and conditions. Mm. And so we must begin to look at how well we can connect our struggle to, you know, to the immediate material things or the immediate material culture of the people. And this is where, you know, Amika Cabra again becomes relevant. Cabra said that 
no revolution can be successful on the African continent without, without any proper understanding of the role of the national culture. I mean, without not building up a national culture. You know, because for Cabra, culture is, uh, in fact, a major productive force. Mm -hmm. You know, that can, push that can push people, whatever, you know, group of persons into, you know, extreme radicalism. This is Cabra saying that we must see how we can use the culture, the cultural base of the people, you know, to inspire them, you know, into fighting against oppression and exploitation. I think that is the way to go. You know, we must see how best, you know, we can relate all of these issues, you know, within the context of how understandably it will be for the mass of our people by breaking them down conceptually or ideologically. Mm. Without not involving ourselves in our, I mean, in the fancy articulations, you know, battle or, you know, speech, speech battles that more often than not take um, um, greater chunk of our time. You know, I think Fagunwa summed it up very nicely. Um, I mean, including with quotes from Cabral, you know, you can never go wrong with that. Um, <laughs> And I think, you know, in particular, his emphasis on, on culture, right, and on bridging kind of cultural divides is very important here. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's not an easy question to answer, but, mm. you know, the African left in general, I think, you know, can think of messaging in terms of, um, you know, not where we as kind of, I say, Western educated intellectuals might might begin, but, you know, where sort of working people and sort of the masses as such that we're referring to might begin, um, you know, there may be the sort of language just, you know, that in which we're articulating our messages might, might go further. Um, and yeah, maybe there's another Cabralian concept that might come in handy here, you know, in terms of class suicide. And yeah. I know that's yeah. a tricky idea in various ways. Um, but, you know, if we are kind of behind the walls of the ivory tower or, um, you know, online, you know, and the, the temptation to do that is, is, is very high, right? But, um, you know, if, if we're not actually sort of engaged culturally with the sort of lives of, of, of people, um, the, the sort of majority of people, then the likelihood that we'll be speaking a language that's understandable is, of course, much lower. Mm. Um, and, I mean, this is one arena in which the governing parties actually, I think, do a much better job, at least in the Nigerian case. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you know, I think the, the left in Nigeria um, is actually very good at critiquing the governing parties. But we often fail to acknowledge where they're, where they're smart, you know, where they're actually <laughs> um, sort of beating us at the game in practical terms without it's, it's too painful, Said. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, that's the thing. But I think that's that's part of the work that is required. And mm. you know, part of what they're doing is is actually investing in culture at various levels. You know, mm. popular culture, traditional culture. Um, you know, they're quite engaged in the cultural conversation in a way that you know, we have not been for a while. Um, you know, so I think Fagawan is right in pointing pointing that out as a, as a path forward. Um, but of course, the particular forms in which that will take in, in various contexts will, will, will be different, right? And probably have to emerge in practice. Mm. Thanks, thanks, Saeed. And 
And I think that's a, a good place to to end off the conversation. And just uh, I guess I guess one one final question. Actually, I, I'm tempted to ask this, um, and especially from you, Fagunwa. So this is this is a a strike that I think places the issue of austerity on on the national agenda because it's about the state's efforts to defund public sector education. Is there any efforts to sort of, I don't know if there's any broader campaign of austerity at, at, the, at the behest of the Nigerian state to not only defund education at the tertiary level, but perhaps also at the primary and secondary level to cut investments to healthcare, to, to social services in general. Um, and in, in South Africa, we've just had a constitutional court judgment, the highest courts in the land, been handed down, ruling in favor of the state over uh, a wage agreement that was concluded between uh, public sector workers and the state a couple of years ago. And uh, the state committed, at, and then at some point it reneged on the agreement and it threw up its hands, basically saying what the Nigerian state is now saying to academics, uh, we have no money, sort of playing by the neoliberal playbook to, 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 to say it lacks resources uh, and, and shutting down the question of, of how resources are circulated and redistributed by, by masking it under the pretense that there, aren't, there are none. So do you, is this the kind of strike that could also, I guess, unite or, or, or unite public sector workers in general, not only academics at state universities, but maybe healthcare workers, maybe also public transport workers. Um, and as you were saying earlier, if, if, if there is no resolution, this is going to be a powder keg, what might that powder keg look like? Thank you for that um, important question. And, and I think again that, um, you know, as who is articulating the crimes, the heels of the Nigerian states, you know, particularly on the question of defunding the public educational um, sector. And um, ASU is critically saying, you know, um, and you can deduce this from the statements, from the speeches, but, you know, that the president and also um, some, you know, uh, prominent members of um, the union and the leadership realm, you can deduce this from their interventions. Um, also have been extremely explicit on the note that this IPPIS struggle, you know, it, um, it's a basis, it's a basis that um, sprang from the IMF and World Bank um, uh, conditions, you know, proposals, you know, uh, I, I mean, also is very, very explicit that the devaluation the of the currency is symptomatic of um, the loans that this government took from the international finance capital uh beyond that the deregulation and also the attempt at defunding that all of these things are products of um you know the capitalist regime that um you know the mass of the nigerian people seems to be experiencing at this time mm. i think with those articulations um what asu is doing you know invariably is to say that there is a need for an alternative and beyond these statements I think efforts are also being made through CEPAD, CEPAD or something like that, you know, a and, and educational platform 
that um, that is under the control and management of ASU. You know, um, through that platform, ASU has been saying that you know the mass of the people have got to be educated. You know, workers have got to be educated, and we are insisting. Some of us we are insisting that there must be a collaborative effort, particularly with other unions on the campuses, Sano, Nasu, and beyond that. Some of us we are even saying that ASU must get back into the fold of NLC. Mm. You know, because um, at a point in time, before the, I think it was um, Babangida or you know one of these um, crazy guys that. Um, you know, um, the smartwood relationship ASU had with NLC. ASU used to be an active uh, member of NLC until I think it was around the 80s or thereabouts that that, yeah. um, you know, divorce was uh, put together, was um, orchestrated by the Nigerian state. So some of us, we are now agitating that ASU should be brought back into the fold of NLC. But of course, the bureaucrats in NLC are scared of that. Uh, but you see, today, as we have it, you know, the mass of Nigerian people, association of parents across the universities, are in support of ASU. Mm. And for me, that, 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 um, what we don't need is this level of consistency, which we automatically transcend into a more organized, um, you know, situation where we'll be able to organize the mass of the people, you know, towards um, a practical engagement. You know, in the course of an alternative, so mm. I'm seeing, I'm seeing, I'm seeing that possibility really, um, but I'm also seeing that possibility um, based on, you know, um, what we end up to become, you know, um, a mass involvement really, you know, because now, ASU is articulating these alternatives, and we are articulating this alternative, or the union is articulating this alternative because. The union wants, you know, practical executions of these alternatives, you know. So I see this coming, and um, we are obvious. I mean, it's obvious we are we are supporting this movement, you know, towards an alternative. And um, you know, it's just again, it's just uh, it's just uh, within the shortest period of time before this, yeah. we actually be kickstarted, and um, there will be an ultimate, you know, um, execution of these um, proposals by us. Mm. I think that's a, a good a good place to end. I think uh, 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 a cautiously optimistic note, which is a rare thing on this podcast nowadays. So when the, the opportunity to end on a cautiously optimistic note presents itself, I'm going to grab it with both hands. So I've been talking to both Saeed Husseini and Tebni Tope Fagunwa about the ongoing academic strike in Nigeria. Keep watching that. It's still happening. Hopefully it can germinate into something broader and, and rock the boat in Nigerian politics because, as is the case everywhere, that is necessary. So to Saeed and Temi Tope, thank you so much for coming on to the program. Really appreciate you both making the time and look forward to having you on again. A massive thank you to you, our listeners as well, for tuning in every single week. A reminder to subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform, send us a review, tell us what you like, what you don't like, as well as importantly, go on to africaisacountry.com for new writing on politics and culture on the African continent from a left perspective. This has been the Africa is a Country podcast. It's been me, William Shockey, and I'll see you again next week. Mm -hmm.